Good morning, One Tribe. Eric told me earlier that no matter if I'm nervous or not, I'm always the same, which maybe is true, maybe it's a gift, but it's good to be with you this morning. Um, to our One Tribe family online, it's good to be with you as well. About a year ago, I had the privilege of coming to share the word with you, and I used a sermon reference about sneakers. And two things came from that. One was, some of you thought I said Snickers, like the chocolate bar, but I mean sports shoes. And the second thing was, you all said, why didn't you wear sneakers to show off your love for sneakers? So for Max, I wore my sneakers today. <laughs> so today we are going to be continuing in Paul's second missionary journey. Last week, we were looking at Paul in Athens, and we heard from our bro brother John and Jeroge, who took us through Paul's apologetic arguments to the intellectual people in Athens. For today's part of the journey, we will see Paul come to a place that might sound quite familiar to many of us, Corinth. If you're familiar at all with your Bible, you probably quickly make the connection to the books of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. But today, we're actually going to be still in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 16, where Paul first arrives in Corinth. This is the beginning of the Corinthian church, a very exciting moment in our church history. And in this part of the journey, we're going to see several new characters introduced, two in particular who are going to be an integral part of God building his church. Some ordinary people being used by an extraordinary God to make history and build his church. So if you have your Bibles with you or your devices, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 18, and we're going to read from verses 1 to 16. And God's word says, After this, he left Athens and went to Corinth, where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul came to them, and since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and worked. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. The Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking, and don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. He stayed there a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. When Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the tribunal. This man, they said, is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. 
As Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or of a serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you Jews. But if these are questions about words, names, and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of such things. So he drove them from the tribunal. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So we want to take the first half of this sermon to look at the ordinary, everyday people that God uses. But before we get too far into those characters, I want to make one point clear. And that is what I mean or maybe don't mean by ordinary, everyday people. I'm talking about you and me and the guy sitting across the aisle from you. What I'm not saying is that we ordinary people are lesser or just plain and boring and have nothing special to offer. You're all very special. (laughs) No, that's not it at all. You see, we heard just a few minutes ago from Eric about the Advanced uh, Africa Leadership Conference, and I had the privilege to, to be a part of the team that went. And on the first day, Eric and his wife, Anna Lauren, and I were kind of looking at each other saying, why are we here exactly? Because you see, it was mostly church elders, deacons, people with positions of, of leadership in the local church. And how appropriate that I started to begin sermon prepping during my time there, because God just caused, caused this passage to just jump out at me. And he began preaching these words to me of these are the people he uses, the ordinary, everyday people. So why were the three of us there, along with Cephas and Michelle and James and Davey? We were there because God uses all of us to move his story forward. The believers who serve as leaders and elders in the church, the believers working in the marketplace, the believers who are doctors going to the hospital every day, the believers who are mothers caring for their children, the believers who are students going to class and the lecturer doesn't show up, even the lecturer who doesn't show up. I have some students living at my house. So God always makes history with everyday, ordinary people. So with that understanding of ordinary, everyday people, let us dive into our characters here. So we see here that Paul left Athens and he moved on to Corinth. Corinth, an ordinary or not so ordinary place. Corinth is about 78 kilometers, so not too far from Athens, but it's completely different from Athens. Corinth is the Las Vegas of the Bible. And there's a photo up on the screen of Las Vegas. If you don't know about Las Vegas, that's your homework for when you go home. You can read up on it. But here Paul is. He's left Athens, a place full of intellectuals. Think the people of Harvard and Oxford. And if you're from where I come from, we call it the wine and cheese crowd of UNC Chapel Hill. That was my school, so I can say that. And now he comes to Corinth, a place full of partying, full of sexual pleasure, and probably complete chaos, Las Vegas. It's the home of the Temple of Aphrodite, which held a thousand temple prostitutes. But maybe, just maybe, it's not so different than a place like Nairobi, the place where we live, and other cities around the world where sin is prevalent. Back home, and you probably heard it here in movies and stuff, there's a phrase, what happens in Vegas 
stays in Vegas. Well, praise God that what happened in Corinth didn't stay in Corinth. So Paul finds himself in this totally different kind of place, one in desperate need of the gospel. And we see right away in verse 1 of our text that we just read that he finds these two people, Aquila and Priscilla. These are two individuals who are there just living their life, trying to figure things out, but they end up playing a major role in building the church. Let's dive a bit more into them. Aquila and Priscilla, they're tent makers. They're not missionaries or professional pastors or workers of faith-based organizations or teachers or professional worship leaders or whatever other occupation we so often associate with being the ones who take the gospel to the nations. No, these two are tent makers. That's their occupation. They were skilled with their hands to sew leather or some other type of material together to make tents to sell to Roman officials who then use them for Roman soldiers to sleep in. Many of us in this room are also gifted with making things with our hands. Or we have trades. Many are in the marketplace building your business. Maybe you're a shopkeeper or a public servant or you work in catering or you help care for people's children. God used tent makers here. Just guys doing an ordinary job but willing to serve him with it. More to come on tent making in a bit. Priscilla and Aquila, we also see our refugees. They aren't natives of Corinth. They had just recently come here after being forced to leave their country. Not the greatest circumstances to be in. They've had to leave everything they know. They're not prominent officials in the city or well-known. They're just everyday, ordinary people who aren't even natives of where they are. So maybe a quick word to those of us who are not natives to Kenya or not natives to the city of Nairobi. Whatever circumstances brought you here, God has a plan to use you. And despite these difficult circumstances in Priscilla and Aquila's life, we see that they used what they had and did what they could to participate in God's history making. You see, what they had was a home, and so they invited Paul in to stay in their home with them. Now, opening your home is a very generous act. I know many of you in this room do it already, but it's not some great theological strategy that Priscilla and Aquila used. They simply took their home, opened it up for Paul to come in, and the history-making continued. Also with their home, by inviting them in, They did what other ordinary people would do. They became friends with Paul. They built a friendship over time. Rather than just a place to sleep or just working together as colleagues, they offered friendship. And while the text doesn't directly give us exact steps as to how the friendship was built, we see that Paul stayed there for a year and a half. Enough time for a friendship to be built. We also don't directly see in our text today, but if you read on in Acts 18, we see that Priscilla and Aquila go with Paul when he leaves Corinth, and they sail to Syria. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm sailing to Syria, I want to make sure I like the people that I'm sailing with. So friendship was built. And so again, ordinary people are who Priscilla and Aquila are but they were willing to follow God where he was leading. 
And they took this friendship and it led to discipleship and community, which are two vital things when we are ordinary people wanting to be used by an extraordinary God. So I've mentioned Paul, and you see in the story that Paul was there. So he's the next ordinary man that we want to look at. Now, I am a huge fan of Paul. A few of my girls that I get to disciple are here, and they know I love Paul. And I think many of us believers think of Paul as a hero. But just for the next few moments, I want us to walk through Paul's ordinariness. I want us to see how he was just another ordinary, everyday man who was called by an extraordinary God. So just like Priscilla and Aquila, I told you we would come back to tent making. Paul was a tent maker as well. He had an everyday job, he needed an income, and he found a way to generate such. His Monday to Friday, or probably Monday to Saturday, was spent sewing tents and selling them. While we might consider this ordinary, it was such an important part of the story. You see, tent making allowed for financial support, as we just mentioned. Paul works that job so he can earn a living. Just like many of us in this room, we work a full-time or maybe a part-time job so that we can earn enough to eat and live and do the things that God calls us to do. Tent making also allowed these guys to use their gifts. I had the great fortune of growing up with two grandmothers who could sew. And one was incredible. She made every costume I ever needed for church plays, for, for dress-up parties. You know, in the U.S., we do Halloween. So my favorite was my M&M costume. And she made all of them. And she used that gift to bless so many people in our community. So far, I haven't acquired that gift. I once sewed a pillow in home economics class in grade eight, and it was a very sad-looking pillow. But the point is, sewing is a gift that they had. But I have other gifts, even if it's not sewing, and so do you. Maybe, maybe yours is sewing, but maybe not. But God gives us these practical gifts that he can use to be a part of his history-making. This tent-making also provided an opportunity for Paul to do discipleship. You see, as we mentioned before with Priscilla and Aquila, it wasn't just a job they did together. They spent time together, and Paul discipled them. The great Charles Spurgeon came to faith through a shoe salesman. So God can use, use shoe salesmen to raise up a man like Charles Spurgeon. He can use a tent maker to raise up other tent makers who are disciples of Jesus, who go on to build a church like Corinth and churches beyond. And he can use a mother like mine, who worked as an ordinary accountant to bring me to faith and then take me from being an ordinary lawyer to go across the world to work at a girl's high school. And if you need a moment to check your ordinariness, spend all your day with teenage girls. <laughs> You'll find out very quickly you're ordinary. Each of you have your stories too. And he can use what feels like ordinary jobs to make disciples in your day-to-day. -day. Along with discipleship, again, we're going to go back to that friendship thing. Not only did Priscilla and Aquila have friendship there, but Paul also was an ordinary man who needed friendship. You see, in verse 1, it tells us Paul found Priscilla and Aquila. 
He didn't want to just do life alone there. Instead, he wants to do life with other people. He seeks out friendship intentionally. And this leads to a beautiful display of community and discipleship among them, which are, as I mentioned earlier, vital in our walks as ordinary people. So let me take this chance to say, if you're not in a life group here at One Tribe, maybe that's your step today. Take it from Paul. We ordinary people can't do it alone. We need people to do life with. So moving on to other parts of Paul's ordinariness, we see his ordinary nature by him himself recognizing that salvation did not belong in his hands. He knew it was not him to do the saving. His role was to preach the message of the one who can save. We see this in what feels like really harsh words that he gives to the Jews in verse 6. I don't know if those caught your attention, but as we were sermon prepping together as a team, these words, we were like, what does this even mean? But he says to the Jews, after they keep rejecting the things he's saying, he says to them, your blood is now on your own heads. And while we don't have a whole nother day to go through those words and what they might mean, many commentaries I read said that by saying this, Paul is emphasizing two things. One, how much he believes the truth he is preaching. And then secondly, he is recognizing that he has done all he can do, that he preached the message, and that was his part to play. Or in other words, he could not save them. He could only offer them the message of salvation. So even in recognizing that he was ordinary, Paul knew he had an extraordinary message about an extraordinary God. And that extraordinary message that he preached was Jesus is the Messiah. Full stop. You see, Paul trusted that message so much. He trusted it enough for salvation. And he trusted that the people of God's city would respond. He didn't need to elaborate. He didn't need to make it about himself. Jesus is the Messiah was enough. And finally, with Paul, I believe one of the greatest ways that the word shows us, he's just a man like you and me. I'm not a man, but you get the point. (laughs) Is in the fact that Paul had fears and doubts and weaknesses. You see, it seems he was doubting and wondering if he should even continue on. How do we know that? Well, if you look in verses 9 and 10, which Obed will take us through in a few moments, God speaks directly to him about it in a night vision. Paul needed encouragement from the Lord because he was feeling overwhelmed. Have you felt your weaknesses this week? I know I have. Have you wondered and doubted, is it even worth it to continue on with this? Have you been sharing the word with a friend all week? And it feels like it's going nowhere. Paul, too, had those challenges. He was an ordinary, everyday man who needed the Lord to provide him with exactly what he needed in that moment. And as we continue in that passage, we see that not only is it Aquila and Priscilla and Paul, many other Corinthians are a part of this story. Many other ordinary, everyday In the second half of verse 8, which should be up on the screen soon, it says that 
It says, many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed, and were baptized. You see, these ordinary, everyday people heard the gospel, they believed it, and they were baptized. The Corinthians, let's go back to the beginning of my talk. The Corinthians, the partiers, the ones living out a life full of sin. But they heard, they believed the gospel, and a great awakening came to Corinth, or to Las Vegas, as we were calling it. And because of this, we get the Corinthian church. And the two books of the Bible I mentioned, of First and Second Corinthians, and his story continues to be made. Ordinary people, the history maker chose them and they played their part. Aquila, Priscilla, Paul, they were willing to allow their ordinary lives to be used by the history maker so that his story might be written. What in your ordinary life are you leveraging for the gospel? Are you living out his story in your day-to-day life? But there's one last ordinary man to consider who at the same time was not ordinary at all. Jesus, the son of a carpenter, raised and trained up to be a carpenter just as Paul was trained up to be a tent maker. He did life with other ordinary people. He called fishermen and tax collectors to come and follow him. Hebrews 4.15 tells us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus himself faced weaknesses and temptations, just as all of us ordinary people do. In fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he faced so much that he even sweat drops of blood. But unlike us ordinary people, he was without sin. He did not let those temptations lead to sin, for he was also fully God. Come to walk this earth in the ordinary way, but with an extraordinary purpose. To save all of us ordinary people and send us out to go and make disciples of all the other ordinary people around us. Our history maker is an absolutely extraordinary God. And with that, I'll invite Obed up to walk us through our extraordinary God. Yes, our history maker is an extraordinary God, and he uses ordinary people to spread the gospel. But the interesting thing is that he doesn't allow these ordinary people to do it alone. He always steps in to help whenever they need his help. So we're going to pick up from where Catherine left and look at how God sovereignly steps into Paul's ministry in Corinth. And we'll be doing this under three topics. The first we're going to be looking at is the divine arrangements that we see in the passage. The meeting of Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila is nothing short of God's divine arrangement. He arranged arranged himself. I believe it was our God, the history maker, the extraordinary God who made Claudius command all the Jews to leave Rome at that particular time so that they could go and meet Paul, who was already at Corinth, in need of a community that would help him advance the gospel in Corinth. I'm saying this because I know for sure that sometimes 
yes, the circumstances that led uh, Priscilla and Aquila to leave Athens were not, uh, Rome rather, were not pleasant circumstances. We know they were forced uh, because there was a riot in Rome and Claudius thought that the Jews are responsible for that. So he forced them out of Rome and they had to flee to Corinth where they met up with Paul. Yes, the circumstances were not pleasant, but I can tell you from personal experience of walking with the Lord that even though the circumstances that led to us getting to where we are are not pleasant, God still used those difficult circumstances to get us to places where he wants us to be. Because standing here before you is a result of God using unpleasant, difficult circumstances to move me from Nigeria to come to Kenya and subsequently meet with Cody, who invited me to one tribe, and I'm here today preaching. Thanks, Cody. <laughs> Let me tell you how it happened in a few minutes. So I graduated from the seminary in 2018, and I got a decent job to work as a youth mobilization officer with a mission organization called Capro. I was working there, but I didn't have the satisfaction of working in that organization, not because they are bad people, but I just didn't have the peace. And I felt within me that I needed to go out there and teach other people who desire to know God more because of my passion for youth ministry. I wanted to be a lecturer, but then in Nigeria, the educational standard is you can't teach in a university unless you have a master's degree. That means I have to go do my master's if I want to fulfill the dream of becoming a lecturer. So I had to leave the country and I told my family that I'm going to leave. I'm going to Kenya. I'm going to study. I decided to come to Kenya because as at that time, I compared schools around, around the world that offer masters in youth ministry. And apparently there were only two countries that I found, South Africa and Kenya, that were offering those uh, courses. So I decided to come to Kenya because it was cheaper. I didn't have all the money to come. So I chose Kenya because it was cheaper. And I raised all the support, applied for the school. I got admitted at Pan-Africa Christian University. I was sent to the admission later. I was sent to the fee structure. And when I looked at the fee structure, uh, the money I was supposed to pay for my first term was 120000 In my mind, the money has been uh, exchanged to Naira. It was just to pay 120000 Naira, not knowing it was 120000 Kenyan shillings. And as at that time, one Kenyan shillings is equivalent to 3.5 naira. So I, I, I was, I was gathering 120,000 naira to come to Nairobi, Kenya to study, pay my school fees for the first time. I was able to gather enough money, pay for my flight and send money over to the point person that helped me get admission here. On arriving, he, he actually sent an Uber to pick me from the airport and then organized a place where I could spend the weekend because I arrived on a Saturday night. So on Monday, I went to his office. I told him, well, I've sent you some money, almost 200,000 naira. Would you pay my school fees? Then give me the rest so I could buy a few things that I need and settle in, in Kenya. And he smiled, just as you are smiling right now. <laughs> he smiled and told me that, I don't think the money you sent me is equivalent to 20,000 Kenyan shillings. Because when you do the conversion, the money won't be that much. I was shocked. The only thing I could think of is I want to go back. But then, even if I want to go back, I don't have the money to bring my return ticket closer. So I was stuck in a foreign country. I don't understand Kiswahili. I don't have any family around here. I don't have friends, even in Uganda or Rwanda around. My family and friends are thousands of miles away from here in Nigeria, here in a foreign land, very unpleasant situation. Most of the time I'll be in the room throughout the day, just stay at home because I, I registered two courses, yes, but my classes are in the evening. So on Monday, 
Wednesday and Friday, I have nothing to do. I couldn't take my full load. I would just be in the room, pray all the prayers I could pray, ask God all the questions I wanted to ask. Why would you lead me from my country, from the comfort of my home, to a place where I would be in such a difficult situation? While I was in that moment of just trying to understand why God would do that to me, uh, I attended the theology uh, fraternity forum, and we during the meeting, the dean of the School of Theology mentioned that there's a guy who does ministry in Nairobi, Kenya, and he wants volunteers to help him set up uh, Jesus film in Nairobi and just show it to the people on bridge. I was like, well, I, I'm doing nothing. I, I don't have classes available. Why can't I just volunteer and just help this person? So I gave out my name, and after a few days, we were called, and I went to meet whoever that person was, and behold, it was Cody. Cody was seated. He told me what he does, and he would want us to help him set up. We were three, apparently, and we started the ministry together. Interestingly, every Saturday, most of the Saturdays we go out together, Cody would ask me, how was service the previous week? I would tell him, the chronicles of my life looking for a church in Nairobi. The first church I went to, they were speaking Kiswahili all the time. The other church I went to, they don't even clap their hands when they sing, and I like to dance. And the other church I, <laughs> the other church I went to, the, the pastor would just come on the pulpit and do all the shouting, the gymnastics on the podium, and I was not comfortable. So when I told Kodi about that, he's like, well, you could maybe try come to my church. It's one tribe. You might want to come check it out. I was like, yeah, fine, sure. So he picked me up from Park University on a Sunday morning, brought me to one tribe. And on that Sunday, Imbonisi was preaching. I can't remember what he was preaching about, but I remember that after the service, Kodi was trying to make me feel comfortable by introducing me to a few people around. And so he took me to Imbonisi, told Imbonisi, this is Obed, you know, introduced me to him. And I still remember that when he told Imbonisi about me, just introduced me. Imbonisi stopped what he was doing. I think he was having a post-service meeting or something. He stopped what he was doing, looked at me, and said, I still remember the words. He said, Obed, we need you here. And that was how I got stuck to one tribe, and I'm still here today. As you can see from my story that I just shared, my coming to Nairobi, Kenya was not on a very pleasant visit, a vacation or something. It was a journey that I didn't expect. It was difficult situations. I faced a lot of difficult situations in Nairobi, Kenya that I thought of going back. But God used those difficult situations, unpleasant situations to get me to meet Cody so that I would subsequently get to one tribe and one day share the word with you here. And I want to tell you this morning that even the difficult moments in your life, just like Paul Priscilla and Aquila were forced, Priscilla and Aquila were forced from Rome. Paul was persecuted. Even the difficult moments in your life are still part of God's plans to lead you to where he wants you to be. You just need to keep trusting him on that. The second point I want to talk about is how God steps into those difficult situations. The good thing is that the God we serve doesn't just allow you face difficult situations all alone, but he steps into those difficult situations to affirm you. He gives you divine affirmations that he is with you, his presence is with you, and he's going to protect you. I, uh, as part of One Tribe, I'm also part of the Daisy Road Life Group. If you're here, please say hi. Yeah, <laughs> that's the group. So part of what we do in the Daisy Road Life Group is that we get to pray for each other after the Bible study. And the previous months we've been praying for the Olsons. Karen had had uh, a case, a court case sometimes back. I'm not going to go into the details of that. Uh, but what I'm trying to point out is we've been praying for that, that God should step in and do something. That prayer to the answer was not there yet. Uh, just the f uh, last month during the presidential election, 
Karen was supposed to have a court appearing, but then the court she was supposed to appear in was the same court that the petition was happening, the Milimani, Milimani, Kilimani, Milimani, Milimani court. And we prayed on Thursday because she was supposed to appear in court on Monday. We don't know what to do. We just prayed that God will just take control of the situation. So Greg, Greg came over the following week to tell us that on a Monday, on that Monday of the case, he was in his office and he just felt the nudge to walk down from his office and walk to the court. His, his office is close to the court. So he walked to that place and there was a lot of chaos at the gate. People were just, you know, people that were supposed to have court case were there and there was, it wasn't very orderly. And as he was standing there, the security guy somehow started talking with him and told him there's a meeting happening. You need to download Google Meet and all of that. Greg was not very, you know, convinced about all that. He was not really comfortable, but he's like, you know what, just do it. They tried to log in the meeting. It wasn't successful. So Greg left the place and went back to his office. And he said when he was in the office, he still felt the nudge. Just try logging into this meeting once more. And the moment he logged into that meeting, he said that at that moment, whoever was talking called out his wife's name, Karen. And when he was sharing that story, I could see in the faces of the life group members the affirmation we have that the prayers we say before the Lord are not just in vain. That God answers the prayer and his presence is with us even in a difficult moment. Although the case is not over, Karen still has some more court appearing, but although the case is not over, I am sure Greg and Karen have been affirmed that God is with them in this difficult moment and his presence is there to give them protection over this difficult situation. And that is what we're talking about. An extraordinary God who is there to divinely affirm us, to arrange, to make divine arrangements and divinely affirm us. And that is exactly what God did to Paul. When Paul's ordinariness came to him, when he felt his fear, his doubts and weaknesses came hunting him, God came in the night vision in verse 9 to 10 to affirm Paul of his presence and his protection. God said to Paul, do not be afraid for I am with you and I have many in this city who needs to hear the gospel. Maybe I should just pause here for a minute and ask you the same question that Catherine asked. Have you felt your weaknesses this week? I have, she had. Have you felt it? Have you wondered if it's, if it's even worth it to continue on the path that God has called you to? We all get to that moment sometimes in our life. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that God sees you. He sees your fear. He sees your doubt. And he will divinely affirm you of his presence and protection. He has promised in Matthew 28 verse 20 in the Great Commission that he is going to be with us always until the end of the age. And that was the same promise that he gave the Apostle Paul in that night vision. Before I invite Catherine back to learn this sermon, I want to briefly talk about the last point, the third point, which is the divine acquittal. In verse 12, we read that the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before Gallio. I think it is important for us to understand that the attack we read in verse 12 is not an ordinary attack that we, that Paul was used to. It's not like he's just going to be before the council and then he's, he's going to defend himself and he'll be discharged. A Bible commentator mentioned that just to help us understand the gravity of that attack, Bible commentator said, if Gallio had accepted the Jewish charge and found Paul guilty of the alleged offense, Provincial governors everywhere would have, would have had a precedent and Paul's ministry would have been severely restricted. What that means is that if Paul was to be found guilty of that charge that the Jews made against him, probably that would have been the end 
of his ministry because they would have restricted him from spreading the gospel any further. So this was a very serious attack, not just on Paul, but also on his ministry. And as the custom of the tribunal, Paul was brought before Gallio to defend himself. The charge was made and Paul was about to defend himself. But God had already made a promise to Paul in the night vision in verse 9 and he was not going to back down. God stepped into that situation in a way that before Paul could open his mouth to defend himself, Gallio discharged the case and dismissed everything. Luke tells us that uh, this was how the case went. God in an extraordinary way. Nobody would have expected. The expectation would be probably God would give Paul some eloquence so that when he speaks, Gallio would be convinced or something like that. But God decided to use an extraordinary way because he's an extraordinary God to, to, to uh, discharge Paul from the case that was labeled against him. So he, he affirmed him of his presence and protection and he kept that promise by acquitting Paul from the charge that was made against him. Let me tell you, that the extraordinary God we serve does not only arrange meetings, does not only divinely bring people to where he wants them to be. He does not only affirm us in our weaknesses and our doubts, but he's able to save us in extraordinary ways when we can't even save ourselves. Let me invite Catherine for application and the conclusion. You thought you were finished, but so ordinary people, and yes, I'm calling all of us ordinary. As Obed has just told us, we have an extraordinary God. So what do we do with all of this that we've heard today? So we, we wanted to end for you with a few encouraging points of application. So number one, embrace your ordinary. As we have seen in our story today, because we have an extraordinary God, it's not about us, but because we have an extraordinary God, we can be ordinary people on an extraordinary mission. So embrace your ordinary. Leverage your ordinary days, your ordinary job, your ordinary family, your ordinary social life to be about honoring this extraordinary God. You don't have to get to some certain level before you can be on the mission. Embrace your ordinary. Number two, settle in. Just as we saw with Aquila and Priscilla, God has you here in Nairobi for a reason. Settle in, friends. Whether it's for a few months, a few years, or forever, settle in while he has you here. Be intentional in your friendships with the ordinary people around you. Leverage them for the gospel. You never know who might be selling with you to Syria or to the other side of Nairobi or to the other parts of Africa. Settle in. Number three, keep speaking. Fears come. It's inevitable. Obed and I have confessed to you that this week as we were preparing for this sermon, we had doubts and fears and weaknesses. The enemy wants nothing more than to, to close our mouths from speaking the good news of this extraordinary God. So keep speaking and pointing people to Jesus with your words and your actions as you live out this ordinary life. And lastly, number four, 
trust this extraordinary God. Just as with Paul, he promises to you and to me protection and his presence. Again, fears and doubts come, and it can feel so overwhelming, and it always will be if we rely on our ordinary selves. But the extraordinary God invites us to come to him. It's his story. It's not ours. We're called to walk with him. And as we move towards the extraordinary, as we move towards this extraordinary God, fruit comes. It's in fact in the messiest situations when we feel the weakest that often the most fruit comes. A gospel awakening happened in Corinth because an extraordinary God was involved. And just as God said about Corinth, I have many people in this city. He has many people in this city of Nairobi. What would it look like if each of us ordinary people trusted this extraordinary God as he sends us out to the city around us? This extraordinary God was willing to come and live as an ordinary man and then die to take our sin, take the sins of us ordinary people. But because he is an extraordinary God, he didn't die an ordinary death, but instead, three days later, he got up out of the grave and defeated that sin and death so that all of us ordinary people can be reconciled to him, the extraordinary God. One Tribe, this is an extraordinary message worth taking to all the other ordinary people around us. May his story continue through us ordinary people. Amen.